0: Ah, a little light's gone on. I feel very wired up here. If I could sort of go blue and, and and frazzle halfway through the sermon, then you'll know what's happened. Um, well, as uh, Tim was saying earlier on, he's rather given me the hospital pass this morning. of um, speaking on the um, the uh, theme of judgment uh, within within the Bible, it, it, the theme of judgment. When you you think about it, it's, it's quite a sort of sombre um, idea. But actually, for a sombre idea, there are actually a surprising number of jokes out there about, about, about judgment. I suppose my, my favourite one is the one that the guy who comes to the, you know, dies and goes to the pearly gates and he uh, stands there, knocks on the door and uh, up comes St. Peter, opens the door and says to him, um, mm, you want to come in, do you? And he says, um, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. And uh, Peter says, well, you, you really have to have done something rather brave and, and heroic to, to get in here. And uh, so he says, hmm, um, let me think about it, brave or heroic. Oh, yeah, there was, there was one time, yeah, I remember. Um, I, was, I was on a safari holiday um, with my family and various other friends, and we were kind of, you know, we got out of the Land Rover, we were kind of going through the bush, and uh, um, suddenly we were uh, confronted by this huge, huge, ferocious lion. And um, I thought, I, I just cannot let my, my family down in this way. I, I'm going to have to do it. So I thrust myself to the front of the group and I, I fought with the lion barehanded. And so Peter says, um, that's, that's magnificent. When was this? He said, about, about five minutes ago. <laughs> um, well, there are lots of stories like that, but I, I wanted just to, um, to, to, maybe to highlight um, just a number of, of um Principles that can help us think about this whole theme of judgment, um, and uh, arising out of this passage that we read a few moments ago—the one from Matthew 25—but uh, also from the rest of the scriptures as well. So here are some some thoughts as we try to work out: you know, what what are we to think about this whole idea of God's judgment? This idea that, in some sense, our lives will be judged, they will be evaluated, they will be summed up uh, at the end uh, of our days here on this earth. What? does judgment mean? Well, first of all, it seems to be the fir- one of the first things that the Bible says about judgment. The first things we need to grasp about it is that, first of all, in the Bible, judgment is good news before it's bad news. Um, we tend to think, don't we, that judgment is, is bad news. When you hear that judgment, oh, I don't like to think about judgment because it's a kind of bad thing. Um, but actually, when the Bible writers write about judgment, they, they actually quite look forward to it. They think it's great. God is going to judge the world. Um, In our passage of Matthew 25, um, we get this bit in verse 34, where it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, those who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's a great thing. That's the introduction to judgment. Judgment is a wonderful thing. Again, in in a lot of the Psalms, um, Psalm 95, for example, uh, it says this, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. And the psalmist isn't saying, Oh, he will come to judge the earth. It's going to be really, really bad and miserable. He's saying, yeah, God will judge the earth. He is pretty happy about it. He is uh, looking forward to it. Again, Psalm 26. Give judgment for me, O God, for I have walked in my integrity. He's looking forward to the day when God will judge. Uh, You remember the story of um, the the widow. Uh, The widow who... um, uh, goes before the judge. Remember, it's a parable about prayer that Jesus uses. And, and uh, uh, she goes before the, 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 the judge and she, she pleads with him uh, to give judgment in her favour. And uh, Jesus uses that as an image of, of, our, of our asking God to judge in our favour, to make things right. And that's really why it is that the Bible writers actually talk positively about judgment, because judgment in the Bible is God putting things right again God putting things right again um, we are very aware in our world aren't we that there are an awful lot of things that are not right that people do bad stuff and they get away with it and other people live wonderful lives and they are not recognized and they sometimes get bad things happen to them there's this confusion in our world where it doesn't kind of seem to work out right and the doctrine of judgment just tells us that one day, God will put things right again. That this world that is so confusing, so messed up, where all kinds of bad stuff happens, that's not the final way it's going to be. God will judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. And that's good news. And that's why the Bible writers look forward to it. Now, I think this um, also tells us something else about how we view um, the whole idea of heaven and hell. Uh, I do if you've ever been around... Um, Somewhere like the National Gallery, and seen uh, go to the sort of medieval section, and you see those medieval paintings of judgment. Do you remember those ones? Um, if you ever, if you want to go home, look up on the internet. Hieronymus Bosch, he's the kind of main one who does these things, and he has these amazing paintings. And uh, very often, on these medieval paintings, you get you know the, the saved on one side and the damned on the other. And um, the saved on one side, they're kind of looking rather sort of you know like this. They're kind of looking a bit. Um, yeah, they're sort of rather bored, actually, a lot of the time. But um, uh, but they're kind of looking fairly sort of happy with life and everything's all right. Uh, but uh, when you look at the paintings, your eye is drawn towards the other side of the picture, uh, who are the damned? Because that's much more interesting over here, because over here you have all these little devils with pitchforks and bits of flame and tails coming out of their backs and they're kind of probing. The, uh, the, 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 damned, and the dams are kind of all in these writhing bodies of, of, of flames looking at their feet, and you kind of think, ooh, it's not like a, goodness me, that's a bit, a bit sort of juicy, isn't it? And, uh, that's the way, very often, the medieval painters painted heaven and hell. And, and the problem is that, you know, your eye is drawn much more towards the, the suffering of the damned than it is towards the happiness of those who are brought into the presence of God. Now, very often in the Christian life, we can be a bit like that as well. Because, actually, I think in the Bible, your emphasis is the other way around. The Bible is much more conscious of the wonders, the joy, the delicious pleasure that there will be in heaven, than it is of the pain and the agony of hell. And, um, actually, when you look at the Bible, there's not a lot of reflection, not a lot of thinking about the nature of hell within uh, the Bible. We talked about it as a place of destruction, a place of fire, and fire is a place where you, you put something in a fire, it just burns up and destroys. Uh, but that's kind of all you get. There's a lot more reflection upon the new heaven and the new earth, what we will look forward to when we are in the presence of God. There's much more reflection on that than the other way around. So if, if I can put it this way, if, if the Bible writers were painting this division, this separation, I guess our eyes would be much more drawn towards the sheer wonder and joy of what is promised to us when we fully enter into the presence of God than is the other side of the picture. Um, now, um, maybe you can put it this way. In the Bible, when it talks about this division of people into heaven and hell, what it's fundamentally talking about is that heaven is essentially the presence of God. That's what it is. It is being fully in the presence of God. Here, we glimpse the presence of God occasionally. But our minds in this world is again so confused that we don't often see it very clearly. But imagine in those moments when you are amazingly aware of the presence of God, whether it's in worship or whether it's in uh, nature, when you look at one of fantastic sunset or a brilliant view, you suddenly become aware of the presence and the reality of God. Imagine those moments magnified. That's what it means that's what heaven is about that's what the new heavens and the new earth is about being fully in the presence of God but the opposite of that hell is being excluded from the presence of God entirely imagine a life where those moments never happened the, um, it's often said that um, you know, people say well you know, in a jokey way well you, know, you tell me I'm going to hell well that's alright because at least my friends will be there but, of course, the point is that they may be there, but there will be no friendship. Because friendship is a gift of God. Friendship is something ultimately comes from God, and it can only be in the presence of God. We all enjoy friendship, whether we're Christians or not, and friendship comes from God. And so, to be excluded from the presence of God is actually to be excluded from everything that we enjoy within this world. Friendship, love, companionship, joy, happiness... All of those things. And in fact, hell is the opposite of that. Hell is a place where all we know is unrestrained jealousy and anger and anxiety and distrust. Because those are the things you find where God is absent. So that is really what the scriptures tell us, I think, about hell and heaven. And uh, it's as if the bad thing about hell... The bad thing about it being excluded from the presence of God, it's not so much what is there, it's not about what you find there, the sulphur and the brimstone and all those kind of images that you get of hell, but it's what's not there. Because God is not there. And because God is not there, friendship is not there, love is not there, trust is not there, joy is not there. That's why you don't want to go there. And that seems to me is why the medieval painters painted it in that way. They just wanted to convey, look, you just don't want to go in this place. That's why they were trying to kind of portray it as something that you just just want to avoid as far as possible. So this is, I think, a crucial thing about judgment in the scriptures. Judgment in the Bible is, first of all, good news before it is bad news. The tragedy of hell, the tragedy of a life that ends up separated from God entirely, is not so much what what it sees there, but what it misses out on. It is missing out upon our divine destiny. Those great intentions that God has for us. Where God will bring together all of this divided creation under Christ. And to miss out on that is the worst possible thing that can happen. It's a bit like, you know, you can imagine a... a, a, the best party you can ever think of. And you can imagine this thing being prepared and all your friends are going to be there and it's going to be a magnificent occasion. You really want to be It's the one thing you would always wanted to be at. And imagine missing out on that. Imagine having to sit at home on your own, in your flat, in your room, not there. Imagine missing out on it. That's what hell is. It is missing out. So in our thinking about judgment, I think it's really quite important for us, that hell is defined by heaven and not the other way around. Sometimes in our thinking about the Christian life, thinking about heaven and hell, um, we sometimes think that, um, that uh, heaven, if you like, is the absence of hell. We kind of think, well, we don't want to go to hell, and we sometimes preach the gospel as if it's just saying to people, you know, you don't want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven instead. But maybe we ought to do it the other way around. You really want to go to heaven, so you don't want to go to hell. It's that way around. The focus is upon the wonders and the joy that is promised to us in the presence of God. So, judgment is good news. Judgment is good news. And sometimes, perhaps, we need to be much more caught up with our desire for heaven than we are caught up with our fear of hell. Yes, hell is something we do not want to go to. It is not something we want to endure, that separation from the presence of God. That exclusion from God's presence for, forever. But the focus has got to be on the good things that will wait for us in the presence of God. So there's the first thing. That judgment in the Bible is first of all good news before it is bad news. Second thing I think we could say is, again a very strong note that we find within the scriptures, is, this is this, that the judgment belongs to God and not to us. Judgment belongs to God and not to us. Um, In this passage of the sheep and the goats, it's very clear who makes the judgment. It is this king, the son of man, who comes. Romans 12 verse 19 picks up this very um, common statement of the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Judgment is God's and not ours. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. There's a lot in the Scriptures, a lot in the New Testament especially, that emphasises how, how different God's judgments are from ours. And how easily and how often we get it wrong. And therefore, the New Testament tells us that we must be quite cautious about making judgments upon each other. Um, just think for a moment of the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, you remember the story of the, the Pharisee the religious guy who comes to the temple and uh, uh, he says to God I, I do all these things, I, I fast I, I give a tenth of what I, what I get uh, I live a, a, an exemplary life and, and it is an exemplary life, it's a wonderful life great life he lives um, and the tax collector goes and he's of course a compromiser and he works with the Romans and he's not a good person at all um, now looking at those You know, of course we know how the story ends and we know what it's about, so we think we know it. But actually, if we'd met those two people in the temple that day, there's no question who we'd have thought is God's favourite. Of course it's the Pharisee. He's living a wonderful life. Tax collector is completely different. He's a bad person. But Jesus says, you know, underneath something very different was going on. That actually this Pharisee was quite proud of his own achievement and was looking across at this tax collector in a sense saying to him well thank goodness I'm not like him the tax collector was just pouring out his heart to God and saying just God have mercy on me I know what I'm like I know my heart is not right with you just have mercy on me Jesus knew something different was going on under the surface and the point of the story is that actually we would have got it wrong you and I would have got that wrong if we'd met those two people and this story here the story of the sheep and the goats is a very interesting one because it seems to me it's a story that most clearly out of all the stories in the New Testament emphasizes the reality of judgment. There will be a judgment that at the end of our lives, the end of human life, there is this this division between those who are welcomed into the presence, the full presence of God and the wonder and the joy of that and those who are excluded from it. That's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? But the other thing that this chapter says, this chapter that most strongly emphasizes the reality of judgment, also emphasizes how very often we would get that judgment wrong. Um, there's a real sense of surprise in this story because, um, it says about how, you know, God will divide the sheep and the goats, one on side, just like a, um, uh, a Middle Eastern um, shepherd would divide sheep and goats who often look quite similar to each other in, 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 in um, um, flocks in the Middle East uh, but he would divide them from one another um, but the point is in this story that both of them are rather surprised by this judgment uh, the righteous say to him you know, he says to them, you know, well, you, know, you, you, um, you clothed me and you fed me and you looked after me and uh, he says to the right, the unrighteous, "Well, you, you didn't clothe me and feed me and, and, and look after me." And they both respond with some surprise. They say, "Well, well, when did we do that? When did we feed you and clothe you and look after you?" And the unrighteous say "Well, wh- when did we not do that? What's what's going on here?" Both of them are slightly confused by this. So this story again is one that that reminds us that our way of judgment is not always. God's way of judgment. And it emphasizes how wary we must be about making those kinds of judgments upon each other, and particularly about people's eternal destinies. We must be quite cautious about that, about assuming we know other people's hearts. And this story, I think, helps us. That to be reserved about making judgments about individuals is not the same as denying that there is a judgment. It's just simply saying that judgment is God's and not ours. <coughs> It's simply saying that we must be cautious about our judgments. There is a sense that our judgments are always penultimate, not ultimate. They are never final. In our judgments, there's always the danger of what we call prejudice. If you think of that word prejudice, it kind of comes from two Latin words, pre um, Judging before the time, judging before the judgment has been pronounced. That's what prejudice is. It's anticipating a judgment, thinking you know what it's going to be before it's actually made. So, there is a very important sense in the New Testament that ultimately we do not know each other's hearts. There are secrets hidden there that only God knows, in both Christians and those who are not Christians. So, here is this note of caution for us. Judgment is God's and not ours, and therefore we must be very cautious about standing in judgment upon each other. Third thing about judgment in the scriptures, the very simple thing, it is that that judgment that God makes at the end of our lives is based around one simple thing. It is based around our attitude to and relationship with Jesus. That's what this story seems to say. But when the, these, the um, Son of Man comes in all his glory, the angels are there, the nations are gathered towards him, and he says, he divides these sheep and the goats, on, go- goats on, on two sides. What is the criterion that is used? It is whether they, it's how they related to Jesus. He says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The people who are ushered into the presence of God are those who have loved and trusted Jesus. But on the other side, those who are excluded from the presence of God are those who have not loved and trusted Jesus. In fact, they've ignored him. As he says to them, You... He says to me, you know, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. It's very clear, isn't it? That this, the criterion of this judgment is our attitude and approach to Jesus. It is not how good a life we have lived. It is our attitude and our relationship with Jesus. Now that's quite counterintuitive for us, isn't it? Because... You know, even that joke at the beginning kind of implies to us that it's kind of about, you know, having done something brave or heroic, having lived a wonderful life, having done all these kind of things. Um, But this story doesn't tell us that way. Now, why is that the case? Well, maybe it's this. When you think of your own, well, when you think of what God is looking for from us, what does he look for from us? It's as if God says to us, don't give me your goodness, just give me your trust Don't give me your goodness, just give me your trust. That's all I want. I just want you to trust me. I want you to love me. Because I trust you. I love you. Now, when you think about it, that kind of makes sense. When you think of our own relationships, uh, what is a good relationship? A good relationship is one where you're not always trying to prove yourself to the other person by doing all kinds of things to prove your love for them. A good relationship is one that is founded upon love and trust. That's the bottom line of a good, healthy relationship. Now, of course, out of that come all kinds of good things that you do to each other. And you do try and please each other, and you do try and do good stuff for each other. But it's founded upon love and trust. That's what a good relationship is about. And when you find a relationship where you're with someone you're never quite sure whether they trust you they're never quite sure whether they love you and you you, you have to keep on trying to prove it and keep, keep, keep on trying to do things to show them that they love you and you know they never quite believe you that's not a healthy relationship. Now God is exactly the same he says to us you know I don't want a relationship where you're trying to prove your love for me by doing all kinds of things no instead I want a relationship of love and trust. And so that's what this is saying. That the judgment is based upon our attitude to, our trust in, and our love for God as He comes to us in Jesus Christ. So there is the third thing about judgment. But then the last thing. That the best guide to judgment, because sometimes we do have to, you know, make some judgments about each other and we have to kind of work out, you know, where, where, we, where we are on this spiritual life and so on. That the best guide to someone's relationship with Jesus and therefore, The judgment that will come is their attitude towards the unfortunate. Those who are the least. Those who are the poor. Those who are less important than they are. That's, if you like, the most, the best guide to someone's attitude to Jesus. If you want to know about someone else, or if you want to know primarily about us, about yourself, do I love and trust Jesus? Does that person really love and trust Jesus? Well, the sign that this passage tells us is that not necessarily it's about words. It's not just what they say. Because people can say all kinds of things. In fact, Jesus says a number of times, he warns us about people who have lots of fine words, but that's all there is. In Luke 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's that thing again. I never knew you. That's what it is about knowing Jesus. So here is in the scriptures this idea that just the words themselves are not always the best guide to whether someone really loves and trusts Jesus. You can tell those who really love Jesus by the way that they treat those who are less important, more needy than themselves. You can tell those who really love Jesus by those the way they treat those who have nothing. Those who, maybe ordinarily, they would just walk past or disdain or not spend any time with. Because that's very often how Jesus presents himself to us. It is, this passage says, impossible to have really met with Jesus Christ. To have encountered him, to love him and to trust him. And to continue to disdain and to ignore the poor and the needy and to retain a profound indifference to suffering in the world. Well, let's sum all this up and uh, maybe just draw out some simple things that we might want to take away. Number one, this all tells us that we want to look forward to judgment. Judgment is a good thing. God will set things right again. And when it seems that the world is out of joint, when it seems chaotic, when things don't seem to happen right to you or your family or your friends, don't panic. Trust that God's judgment is coming. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where we will enjoy fully the presence of God that we enjoy in part now. Number two, be wary about jumping to conclusions about other people. God jealously guards the secrets of judgments. He alone knows the hearts of men and women. And he warns us against making premature judgments upon each other. We would often get it wrong. and So therefore our default position has to be to accept one another rather than to stand in judgment upon one another. And then lastly, we are to test our own readiness for judgment. Not test the readiness of other people to judgment primarily, but our own. By asking this question, do I love and trust Jesus? And if I want to ask the good, how do I know whether I love and trust Jesus? Well, I look at how I treat those who are less less important, less prominent. Those who are more needy. Those who are unfortunate. Those who are poorer than I am. Because when we deal with those people, it is as if we are dealing with Jesus himself. The one in whom all judgment and all grace and all mercy lies. Amen.